very early stages of Bricks with Tips, I went over to Darlington. I was going to buy an investment property, documented the whole thing, right? When I came back down and started editing the video, editing used to take me ages in the early days. I realized that when I was filming in King's Cross Station, I had a booger in my nose. Very embarrassing. <laughs> Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of How I Crushed It, the podcast that shines a light on talent in the community. I'm your host, Tunde, and on the show this week, we have Tayo Oguntonade. Not only is Tayo a successful property investor and a qualified mortgage advisor, but he is also an expert at social media content creation, the property-related YouTube channel, Ricks with Tips, which him and his wife set up before the pandemic has led him to develop an equally successful TV career. And he can be seen presenting BAFTA award-winning show, The Great House Giveaway on Channel 4. Tayo can also be regularly seen on TV screens and in the press as a property expert on major news outlets such as the BBC News, ITV News, The Metro, and many more. On this episode, you'll hear how he got the entrepreneurial bug at school, how he got on the property ladder at the tender age of 22, and how he hustled doing three jobs at once in order to get where he is today. Now, we had a a few technical issues when recording this episode, so if it does sound a little bit off, that's the reason why. Here is my conversation with property expert, Tyler. show has been brought to you in partnership with UK Black Business Week. Now, with events delivered by industry leaders, the UK Black Business Week promises to equip Black professionals and entrepreneurs with business insights, new skills, and knowledge to navigate the world of work. Talks across a variety of subjects will be available, such as on property, tech, Black women in business, finance, And they have some fantastic speakers such as Dragon Den's Stephen Bartlett, Frank Bruno, Marvin Harrison from Dope Black Dads, and tech pioneer Dr. Anne-Marie Amafidon. The event runs from the 2nd to the 7th of October at different venues across London. For more information, please go to ukblackbusinessweek.com. Okay, so today, welcome to the show, Tayo. How are you doing, Tayo? How, How are you today? I'm very well, thank you, yourself. Very good. Very good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I know you've got a a busy, well, you're always busy basically, but I know you're also, you're going to be speaking at an event I'm going to as well, the UK Black Business Show in a couple of weeks. So are you quite looking forward to that? Yes, yes. Always love the opportunity to be able to speak to people um, about property, about finance, about careers, whatever it may be. So yeah, definitely looking forward to uh, UK Black Business Show. Um, I've been to a few of them previously and they're always excellent. So yeah, um, highly encourage everybody to get down there. Fantastic. Yeah, it'll be my it'll be my first time of going. So um, I'm looking forward to it. Well, let's start at the beginning. This is what we always do with guests that come on. We basically document their journey from start to current day. So uh, for you, Tayo, where did it all begin for you? Where, where did life begin uh, for you in London? Uh, so I was born in South London, um, originally born in uh, around like the borough area, so fairly close to central. Um, my parents weren't born in this country. Uh, they were born in Nigeria. They moved over. They've got, um, I'm of Nigerian descent, so they've got a quite similar story to 
um, a lot of Nigerian parents doing odd jobs, uh, post office, um, wherever they can get work, cleaning jobs, um, uh, renting a council property effectively. Um, so that's kind of how things started for me. I'm the um, middle child of uh, three boys. So I've got an older brother and a younger brother. And yeah, I guess I, I guess that's kind of how we started off. I was relatively young when I lived in Borough. After that, I moved to um, Woolworth Road on the famous uh, Ellsbury Estate. Heard that's that the pink before. block down there. Yeah. <laughs> why Why is it so notorious, that estate? What, what's the uh, situation with that estate? Uh, it, it's funny because externally, right? So living there, you live like near kind of like near Peckham, near OK Road, right? And externally to other areas, I have a lot of cousins that live in northwest London. Um, and I've got people that live all over. And externally, those areas are kind of like notorious for like gang crime and crime in general, generally speaking. Okay. And do you know what? Elements of it is warranted. However, what you do find is that when you live in the area, <laughs> it sounds crazy to say, but it's kind of like, there is, a, there is definitely a community there for the people that live there, effectively. There is an element of a safe community there. Like, living there, you don't ever feel worried about going to the shops to buy, going to the market to buy a parent's plantain because there's a hundred other kids doing the same thing, if that kind of makes sense. So it, it is one of those things that's quite weird. But, I mean, speaking of crime... There were, I, I think that the house was burgled, the flat we were living in was burgled twice while living there. Um, at the same time, I was still relatively young while living um, in Woolworth Road on Ellsbury Estate, effectively. I think a, a huge part of my, well, a, a good chunk of my youth was spent when we finally moved to like the Catford slash Bromley area. And that's kind of where I started getting a little bit of stability because we did move a lot we did move around quite a lot and what my parents did at that point is that they wanted us to go to a school that was still in south but a bit further in effectively so we lived in, we lived in like Catford slash Bromley but we went to school in West Wickham um for people that don't know South London I don't know how to give that context um uh it was a more um you could say like a more rural area it wasn't kind of like as city as Catford or Bromley, if that kind of makes sense. And what we found that, what, what we felt, or what I experienced with that is that you kind of just get an insight into other people, not just the people that you're surrounded by. Um, and that's something that I kind of learned um, through life, uh, through going to college in different areas as well, is that sometimes um, your environment does have an impact on you. What you see does have an impact on you. And I think that, moving slightly further and further out. And as we go through the story, you'll see that I moved further and further and further and further out. Um, <laughs> yeah. there, are, <laughs> there are a lot of different experiences, different lessons you can take. But I think that the key thing is, is that um, any scenario you're in, even if it's a bad scenario, you just try and take a lesson from it and give it a positive spin. And it's not like a deluded positive spin. It's just a way to make yourself better effectively. So if I give a simple ex- example, like... Um, uh, uh, our flat in Ellsbury got robbed, right? Got burgled while we were out. Maybe the positive spin on that is that, you know what? Now we've learned that we have to maybe put deterrence in place to deter people from burglary on our property. And what that does is that that effectively will protect us when we do have a bigger property than 
or a more valuable property than the property in Ellsbury, right? In Ellsbury, they might have taken 500 pounds worth of items, but we learned that lesson today so that when we have 500,000 pounds worth of items to protect, we, we, we've got that adequate safeguard in place and that mindset that will protect your assets, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I um, I heard elsewhere that um, even though you were at school, I'm, I'm not sure if this was primary school or, or secondary school, but you were already quite entrepreneurial. So could you go a little bit more into that? How, how did your entrepreneurial skills uh, come to the fore at school? Um, I think it's a number of things, actually. I think that, um, look, everybody's got the story right away they sell drinks and snacks and sweets in school but I think that um I'm a product of a lot of things right um in actual fact I don't have the story whereby um well I do have the story where my parents moved to this country and they didn't have anything but my parents did relatively well for themselves um and by the time we moved after Catford to Orpington that's where they kind of like had bought their first place effectively and I know that a lot of um, people's parents in a similar situation, um, due to the environment and due to how difficult it is, may not have been able to get to that stage effectively. Um, but one thing that my parents did, which I feel like a lot of African parents did do as well, is that you would know, you would not know how well off or how broke they are, basically. You've got no indication of how much your parents earn, basically. And I feel like that was quite good for a lot of us that were young because it put a lot of us on the, on the same playing field. Um, and what that meant is that for anything that I wanted, right, for example, in my school, you had, I was surrounded with people that might be wearing, like, Prada trainers, right? I didn't want Prada trainers. I wanted kickers. Those are, like, bog-standard shoes, but they've got a brand, right? Instead, I'd get, like, wannabes from, like, Shoe Zone, right? And they've got to last me the whole year. And that's nothing. It's, listen, all of these things are lessons, isn't it? But the reason why I mentioned that is that what that gave me a mindset of is that if there's anything extra I do want, anything above and beyond, I have to go and get it myself. Does that kind of make sense? So if I wanted football boots, right, other than the one trainers that I've got for the year, once again, I would have to go and make money to get football boots, basically. And I guess that that kind of just... Um, kind of drove me to do things to kind of start making money effectively. So selling sweets, selling drinks and so on and so forth was something that I did. And I think that once again, you learn lessons from everything. And during those periods, um, that experience taught me a lot of things. So for example, simple things like um, canned drinks was a high ticket item, right? You buy them in a multi-pack, you sell them and you make a decent profit on every can that you sell. Um, I did that for maybe a month or two. It did extremely well. You'd sell out almost instantly. The problem with canned drinks is that there's only so many canned drinks you can, um, uh, there's only so, so many canned drinks you can sell, or sorry, not only so many canned drinks you can sell, only so many canned drinks you can carry into school because they are incredibly heavy. And you work that out when you start to bring about 50 cans into school. So I would like convert to like multi-packs of um sweets or multi-packs of like these toasted waffles which people used to buy where I could bring huge amounts in, in into the school and even though it had a lower profit margin because I could sell more I'd make a lot more money effectively and those little lessons are things that you take on further into life when you do business so yeah school definitely played a part in it fantastic and um I mean I'm, I'm from a Nigerian background myself but um 
Yeah. I mean, did you, did your parents get wind that you were doing this at school? Absolutely. I mean, they had to, right? I had, I had yes. <laughs> sometimes I'd go shopping with my mum, right? Um, so uh, once again, those kind of you're going to need a car to bring them back back home, right? So um, yeah, my parents were completely aware. And I, I think that if it's, it's one of those things that if the school is um, happy with it, which sometimes they weren't, but parents would never find out, um, then so long as there's no report back from the school, they're cool with it. And I think that to them, they kind of like tried to promote that kind of mindset as well, um, foster that business mind and just um, nurture it so it can benefit you in the future. And I know it was, you know, quite a few years ago now, um, but do you remember back at that time, either in primary school or secondary school, did you have any ideas about what you wanted to do as a career? No chance, no chance. Potentially, potentially doctor or accountant. But once again, that's impacts from culture, right? So um, that's kind of like, once again, in Nigerian culture, it's kind of like, this is what is a good career, basically. Um, and um, yeah, primary school, no idea. Secondary school, no idea. To be honest with you, I didn't have an idea of what I wanted to do for a very, very long time. Um, and I guess that's just testimony to the fact that you can find what you want to do or what you excel at and what makes you happy at a later date but I guess we can unpack that because I know we want to go through the story right so it was actually during um I would almost say the end of university when I finally realized what I wanted to do basically and then even then I changed it later on down the line <laughs> so I yeah see. yeah it's, it's there's always time to be fluid and I think that what you just need to be able to do is to be able to think outside the box as well um to tell a story like I remember being in sixth form um looking trying to align the degree i wanted to do with careers and when you go on google um it wasn't ucas website i think it was like read that had like the highest paying careers and that's what you'd obviously go on right and you and obviously things like doctor are there surgeon are there but one thing i did do i started asking myself that look is um is the hours and I think that to be a doctor, there needs to be an element of passion there. I think times have changed as well, whereby there's a lot of other things that you can do to earn, um, whether that's through business or through a career, um, and you can get similar results to a doctor um, without the strenuous study and time and the time that you have to put into it effectively. So um, a big thing for me was just like educating myself, seeing what else is out there and exploring different options, options that you might not typically find on a website, but you might find out by speaking to people who are actively doing it. Yeah, I mean, one of, one of the things I found particularly sort of interesting about your, um, your journey, particularly through university, is that you were one of the very few students to graduate without any student debts. And I'm like, how is that even possible? I mean, I know I was one of the very last batches of students to have a, a grant and then after that it was the student loan and then year by year you know you had to start paying for your tuition fees and I, I know some of my nephews and nieces have come out with like minimum £30,000 debts because they're, they're having to you know find the money for the tuition fees as well as other other fees so how did you get through those three years at, at Portsmouth University you ended up studying economics how did you leave without having any student debt whatsoever? 
I don't know where you heard that I got stealing debt. I got stealing debt, bro. <laughs> oh, yeah? Okay, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. okay. Uh, I got, okay. Um, I got um, what's this thing? I didn't get any grants during uni. I got student loan. So, okay. fortunately for me, I was on the free, I think it's 3K per t- Three K uh, per yeah, three K per year per yeah, yeah, three K per year one. So it's not a, it's not a huge amount, but yeah, that student loan is definitely there. And um, whenever I dip into, or when I have been permanently employed, I am paying an element of that of of, of my payslip. But I think what 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 you, what you may have heard me on saying a podcast is um, there is student loan right, which is in the background, um, and it kicks in when you start to earn an income from a salary after university. But I think what you may have heard is that um, that I did earn money and maybe come out with savings from university, if that uh, kind of yeah. makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I guess that is just that just tips its hat to the environment that you're in, right? Um, I always say to people that if you're if you live in a house, right, where you live with five other people, and every five every um, one of those five people bakes cakes, right? When you step into another room, a random room, even if you don't bake cakes, you're going to know quite a bit about baking cakes more than the average person in that random room, right? And this is why I always tell people that you are a product of your environment and who you are around does have an impact on you. I always say to people, in university, in university I used to love cars, so and before university. So when I was in sit form, to go back a little bit, um, I went to a sit form in Beckenham. Now, Beckenham is a relatively well-off area. Like They've got Beckenham Park, where a lot of the Crystal Palace football players used to live. Um, but naturally, there's a lot of well-off people there. But the sit form that I went to, it was kind of like half and half. So it was like half people from like Catford, Lewisham, um, Crystal Palace, Penge, so on and so forth, which are kind of more like areas with a lot more black people, I'd say. And then you'd have, pe- you'd have the other half, which is like Beckenham, Bromley, West Wickham and like kind of like well off basically. The good thing is, isn't that sick form? We gelled very, very well. Like everybody mixed in very, very well, which was beautiful to see in it. You know what I'm trying to say? Um, but once again, you, you, you realize stuff in it. And what you realize is kind of like that wealth gap. Um, and what you'll see is that when people turn off driving age, they've got a brand new car from the showroom of their choice, basically. And that's something that a lot of us from, um, let's say, less privileged back- backgrounds, couldn't ever fathom basically but at the same time we loved cars but we had to do something to get them so i remember um all of us used to want to get all of us did get part-time jobs basically and you know back in the days that like, the people that got mns and waitrose were fortunate because um they pay a lot more and it's just a much more nicer environment yeah, i managed yeah. to bag a sainsbury's job and i did <laughs> night shifts as well basically okay Okay. So I was working Sainsbury's part-time on Saturdays and so on. Uh, but I also added night shifts as well because night shifts, you'd earn more money. And effectively, we were all doing that to buy our first cars as well. So um, we weren't getting like the Golfs or the Fiat 500s and stuff like that. But what we were working towards was like, I remember at the time, my goal was a um, an O2 plate Ford Fiesta, right? And cut a long story short, I managed to graft, work, so on and so forth. Got my O2 Ford Fiesta, like another one of my friends got a Megane, and two of my friends got courses. But once again, if you don't have people in your circle that are also working towards a similar goal, you might find that it takes you a lot longer to hit that goal. Does that kind of make sense? So that's what I was realising, basically. But I found my love for cars at the time, basically. Then when I finally went to university, um, there was quite a lot of us. A lot of people from my area went to the same university as me. And it was the same thing again, right? I had my 
O2 Ford Fiesta. And then one of my close friends, like my tight friends to this day, he bought a Golf. And I think people can take this in two different ways. Sometimes, unfortunately, people see that and they get jealous. Um, for me and all of the people around me, you see that and you're like, yeah? So this is possible, right? All right, cool. Wait there, basically. And then you go do it for yourself, basically. So I remember that happened. Um, and I was in university. I found I had some free time. So I went and got a part-time job, right? I worked a few part-time jobs while studying in university. So I worked at H. Samuel as a diamond specialist. And I worked for this company that also used to sell solar panels and like bifold doors and things like that, basically. Um, and that was like a call center. Um, so I did those jobs and eventually I was able to sell the Ford Fiesta and get a Vauxhall Astra. And then that, that same one of my boys went and bought a BMW 3 Series. <laughs> again. <laughs> it really to, like, yeah, so you have to step up again. I'm like, yeah, is this what we're doing? So I remember like that year I stayed back in university over the summer. And I worked at um, a call centre company as well, but they had a contract with Sky, where it's like you just get inbound calls for customer service my remote isn't working. All right, cool. Take the bread, take the battery out, hold the on button. <laughs> you know, all that kind yeah. of stuff, basically. <laughs> so I'm doing that. But I'm going crazy because I've got my goal. And I feel like, fortunately, at that time when you're very young, you could be focused on a goal like buying a car, basically. Um, and I've got my goal, basically. So I'm able to sit there. I'm working between eight to 10 hours a day. No one's in the city, so I've got no one else to do. Just a couple of other people that might be working as well, basically. So, yeah, I was able to then up my, upgrade my car to a TT, basically. But it's kind of just that working element during university that kind of made me able to be able to come out with, do you know what? I've got a little bit of a head start, got a little bit of money behind me after leaving university. Um, one per Someone could actually use that money to pay off their student loans, but... I didn't at the time. Just because I, I guess the way that I see student loan, a lot of people say it as well, student loan is more like a tax than a loan, right? Because it's relative to your income effectively. So um, yeah, that's kind of why I chose not to. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, obviously you went to uni, you got your you, you got your degree, you learned a lot of stuff from the, the course, but it sounds like in many ways you actually learned more from doing the various jobs that you were doing and being kind of task and goal orientated because you know, being goal orientated certainly helps you post degree, doesn't it? I mean, that's as a, working as an adult, that's what most of us have to do day in, day out, be goal orientated, whether it's paying off the mortgage, buying a car, going on holiday, you always need that something to kind of work towards. And um, you obviously did it in spades in, in, in university. So that's, that's really good. I think it's definitely important to include as well that like, when I was in sitform, right, I spoke about, I didn't know what to do. So what I tried to do is I tried to cast a wide a net as wide as possible, basically. So the four AS levels I selected was biology, chemistry, um, maths and business studies, just because I felt like it would keep my options open. I then dropped chemistry and did biology. No, sorry, I dropped maths and did biology, chemistry and business studies. Now, my A-level grades, final A-level grades, weren't that great at all, basically. And Portsmouth wasn't my first choice. I got into Portsmouth through clearing. So it's always important to um, important in, um, put in those parts of the story because everything isn't always hunky-dory. Do you get what I'm trying to say? And you have to um, be able to be resilient enough to see how you can still make something good of what can be seen as a bad scenario, basically. 
Um, similar thing with um, coming out of university. I did manage to get a 2-1 in applied economics. I actually wanted to be on economics course, just straight economics. Um, but because I got in through clearing, they said all we've got is applied economics. So you have to deal with things like that as well. Um, I graduated with a 2-1 with um, economics, thankfully. But even after that, grad schemes, while everybody's getting on a grad scheme and so on and so forth, you find yourself with nothing, basically. And that is also something that you 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 have to be able to be resilient enough to deal with and then go out and make the change for yourself. And that's exactly what I had to do post-university. Yeah, why why do you think that is? Because I, I did read elsewhere that you and your and your circle of friends, none of you were able to get on these, you know, these so-called, well, these graduate schemes, whether it's with EY or PwC, et cetera, some of the banking ones. Why do you think back then you none of you were able to get on the schemes? I mean, you had a 2-1, so that is ex- exactly what they were looking for back then. I couldn't tell you. I generally didn't know anyone that did really get on them. Um, sometimes it felt like, the person that they were looking for to be accepted onto these schemes was like, I don't know, like a unicorn, effectively. I don't know if it was the university itself. I really have no idea. But what I do know is that back in the day, none of us really were getting accepted on these schemes. I always used to make a joke that, like, you put in the application 9am in the morning by 930 they sent an email back saying that you didn't get it. It's like, bro, you didn't even look at the applications. So, yeah, um, it, it's a tricky one, isn't it? And the applications were so long, which was which was so annoying as well. But um, these are the kind of things that you kind of just got overcome, not be knocked back, knocked back by effectively, and keep pushing. And and I guess the silver lining of that story is that all of us managed to get into the banks that we were looking after, the consultancy firms we used to kind of aspire to we managed to get into all of them in the end anyway excellent excellent so what was your first uh post degree job as, as far as you can remember yes yeah, so um, once i got, got out of university i'm kind of looking for jobs everywhere luckily i had a friend who's literally only a year older than me but was doing extremely well in enterprise rent car which is kind of like so rent in, it's a rent in car business but it's an american firm they run it very much so like a business so when you actually get that job, you get to learn what running a business is like because all branches are independent and they make their own profits, which is distributed to the manager effectively. Um, so got to learn that. And it was a very, very intense working scenario. If you ask anybody that works at Enterprise Rent-A-Car, they will tell you it's extremely intense. But once again, you look at the glass half full because that intensity taught me a lot of things which did benefit me in my life later on effectively. But that was my first ever job. Um, and it just involved a lot of dealing with customers, liaising with local businesses to try and strike a deal um, and effectively looking after corporate customers. Um, after that, I, I, I had this thinking that I wanted to go into banking. So um, I applied at Nationwide and Santander um, they both offered me a job. Nationwide really, really liked me, but they changed their job offer from a personal banker to a cashier and kind of said that, do you know what, after a year, you'll become a um, personal banker. But I got some really, really good advice. I can't remember who from early on in my career. And that was like, when these companies say that they're going to give you something in a year, take it with a handful or a flipping tractor full of salt because... They can ultimately do what they want effectively. Um, and that made me go with Santander and become a personal banker. And funnily enough, I experienced the same thing with personal with Santander because I was an excellent personal banker for two years. 
I said I wanted to be a mortgage broker and they kept on kind of like saying to me yeah yeah we'll look into it next year so what I did is I just went and paid for the mortgage brokerage exams myself I passed I said look I got the qualifications myself I want to apply for a mortgage brokerage position and they were like oh yeah yeah we'll see if one comes up I didn't wait around I applied within an estate agency which is actually better for me as well because I get commissions, whereas in the bank, you won't get commissions. Um, and then all of a sudden, when I handed in my notice, there was a position available for me at Santander. But I think that that move that they made just then was a bit of um, a testament to how they do things effectively. So um, I kind of decided to leave. And then I joined Countrywide Mortgage Services, where I was a state agent out, out, out of one of their branches. So what that looks like is that people come in, they want to buy houses, once they make an offer on a property, the branch will say, hey, go and see Tyo. He'll give you mortgage advice effectively. And then that's kind of how it worked. It seems that, you know, during that post-degree period for a few years, you were moving around quite a bit from job to job. But in the meantime, you were able to get on the property ladder. And I think, uh, if I'm correct, that you got on the property ladder at the young age of 22. How, how, how was that for you? How did you get on the property ladder at such a young age? Yeah, so I was effectively, I think that one of the main things I did was I took the mindset um, that I had in university. Um, university wasn't all like rosy as well for me as well. Um, I remember there was a period that um, even when I had the TT, right, and I bought the TT cash, which is quite funny, but there was a period that I had the TT that I didn't work and then I got like these fives in university and so on and so forth. So there was a period that I actually hit rock bottom income wise in university, basically. And that was in my third year during my studies. Um, and I think that once again, learning lessons from the bad times is that um, you kind of realise that you need to be doing the right things with your money effectively and you can't afford to be wasteful with it. So what I did is that when I left university, um, one of the first things I realised, I remember that I've basically been working all of the time um, once I got out of university as well. When I moved back to my parents' house, I kept the same mindset effectively. So the way that I saw it is that I used to pay rent to my landlord in university. I don't need to pay rent anymore. That's savings. I used to pay for food and drink, um, laundry, um, utilities, uh, all of these other things. When I was a student in university, I don't need to do that anymore. This is more savings. The great thing about that as well is that I was earning a lot more money as well. <clears throat> because previously, in sit form, I worked part-time. During university, I worked part-time except for during the summer holidays. So when I finally um, got a full-time job, the full-time money, I think I was on like 21000 but I was like, this is money. Do you get what I'm trying to say? <laughs> so I, I, approach, I developed a really, really unique savings strategy as well. I do like to spend money and I do like nice things effectively. Um, so let's just say that I was getting paid £1,400 or so. What I'd say to myself is that, you know what, I'm going to save 1100 but what that means is that I can just do whatever I want with that extra £300, the I'm trying to say. And that allowed me to spend without guilt, knowing that I had to put money away, basically. I think the second thing I did is that while working through Enterprise and then through Santander, um, I was aware that I used to buy cars and sell them and buy them. And every single time I bought and sold them, I'd lose money because it's a de depreciating asset, just like you'd learn in, um, in university as an economic student. So the reason, the, thing, the reason why I was on buying a house is that um, 
I wanted to buy something that goes up in value effectively. So I looked into buying a property. And I think that the one thing that I did, um, which a lot of people don't do, is that I didn't look in my area. I looked at how much I was earning and I investigated how much I could afford. Now, I think that's very, very key, but um, it's not easy for everybody. To give some context, why it was a little bit easier for me is that I mentioned that my parents and I, we moved to Bromley and Catford, right? Just before I went to university, my parents moved to Orpington. So I spent a lot of my time in Orpington. Now, where a lot of my friends were from Catford or from Old Kent Road, Orpington is like the ends of the world to them. At that time, right? <laughs> Orpington was the sticks. It was like, raw. you live far. Especially at the time when we used to take bus, right? In reality, Orpington to Catford is like a 20-minute drive. But when you used to take bus, it is a little bit of a journey, right? So I was already in the middle of nowhere anyway. And as a result, I'm a lot open to moving further out. I always say to people, I completely understand if you've lived in, um, let's just say, Brixton all your life. Yeah. When someone tells you that, right, you can buy a house, but you've got to move to Maidstone. I can imagine that's like, what are you talking about? Do you get what I'm trying to say? You do have to get over it, but I can imagine that's what it's like. So I always say to people that I was a little bit fortunate in life at that point because I already lived in Orpheum. So I was a lot more open to the idea of moving further out. So that's exactly what I did. I moved further out to a place, to an area called Sittingbourne, which is out in Kent. And for context, I was able to buy a house there for a three-bedroom house for £150,000, which was um, an excellent deal for me at the time. And learning little bits and pieces from university, the landlord that I had in university he used to tell me about the properties that I used to rent out room by room. So when I bought that three-bedroom house, I rented out two of the rooms. And effectively, I got those tenants maybe about a month, two months after I moved in. And from that day onwards, I, I basically had no mortgage to pay because my mortgage was about £488. One person was paying £500 for a room. The other person was paying £400 for a room. So I effectively had no mortgage to pay from the second month or so of owning that home. Perfect situation. Perfect situation. And then what, what were you doing with your additional money? Were you buying an, another car? Nah, I was done with cars at that point. <laughs> I was actually done with cars at that point. So I kind of got a taste of, look, I'm in the real world now. It's time to kind of make decisions now that can have a benefit on me in the future, effectively. So um, I was saving the extra money. So it's quite nice because I was saving the profits that I was making um, on owning a home because I'm getting £900 a month. My mortgage is £488. I'm still making profit on top of that. Um, I'm saving my income still vigorously. Another thing about moving in Sittingbourne is that living in Sittingbourne is that your social life reduces a little bit as well, naturally, which in my mind allowed me to save a lot more as well because I need to really weigh up. If people want to go out in central London, it's gonna, it might be an hour drive for me, an hour, 10 minutes. So I really need to weigh that up basically. And a lot of the times I wouldn't go effectively. So that allowed me to save money. Um, and then now I'm on the property ladder. So now, with every year that goes by, I am seeing added equity in my property, whether that's me paying down a mortgage or if it's just me or if, if it's just the property going up in value as well. Um, and during that period, it was both. So I think it was probably a year and a half after when I bought my second property. And when I bought my second property a bit closer to London in an area called Gravesend, I think at some point I sold my car. I can't put my finger on when I sold my car Um 
to help buy one of the properties. Um, I can't remember if it was the second or third effectively, but it just goes to show that there are sacrifices that you have to make in order to kind of build as well. And you mentioned there you were able to buy your, your second property and then very quickly that ended up turning into three and then four properties. And then I forgot to mention that partway through this period, you also met your wife. So did you meet your wife at uni or was it kind of post, post, post-university? So we actually met on, at university. We met on the first day of uni, very, very briefly. But I think but we, we kind of started dating right at the end of university. So we'd been together for quite some time, which is which is really, really nice because we were able to grow together and kind of like share the journey together. And even before we bought our first property together, um, which was in like 2017, she was a huge part of the journey prior to that anyway. Um, so yeah, um, really, really um, good for us to do together. And it's quite nice that that's the idea. And I think that it's a, it's a huge benefit when you buy with someone anyway. Um, because obviously you combine salaries, you combine deposits, so on and so forth. And two is much stronger than one, especially in the world of property. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's actually quite rare, I find, actually meeting your partner in university. I mean, it used to happen quite a lot back in the day, but it's, uh, it seems to be becoming rarer and rarer. So that's, that's nice to hear. And you mentioned she's become a big part of your journey. And um, that kind of leads into the YouTube platform that you both created that maybe some of you, some of you listeners maybe know Tayo from, which is uh, Bricks with Tips, the both of you created that. I mean, what was the motivation for creating that YouTube channel? Yeah, I think the motivation was is that um, when Antoinette and I were on like our third or fourth, probably our third property, naturally our close friends and family were interested on how to get on a property ladder as well. But one thing we found is that they were succeeding, right? And a lot of them were coming to us for, for tips, for education, and so on and so forth. But a lot of it is just environment as well. Similar to how I mentioned that my friend would buy a new car and all of a sudden it would make me see that, do you know what, this is possible. I'm going to upgrade my car too. We were having those that same impact on our friends around us, effectively. It's not necessarily our teaching we're not better than everybody. In some cases, it's just being in that environment. So we had the idea that let's create a wider environment for our community where they can see people that look like them buying property on what were modest salaries at the time as well. And let's show people that this is actually possible. It was actually a key thing for us to do as well because both Antoinette and I were spending a lot of time on the phones with individuals having long conversations. Maybe after work you have a one-hour conversation with someone, showing them what they can do to get on the property ladder. And social media helps with that because you're allowed to tell one message once and hundreds of thousands of people can benefit from it. So that's what we did. We launched um, Bricks with Tips via Instagram, Twitter and YouTube simultaneously. And we we haven't really looked back from there. We, we went from strength to strength. I think our first video um, was called Four Houses in Four Years because at the time we was on our fourth house in four years, right? And... It was kind of like a clickbaity title, I say clickbaity, but it's kind of like a market employee. But really and truly, what we wanted people to do, we wanted them to be interested enough to click on the video. And we spent the whole video just talking about what steps you can take to buy in your first property. And that's been kind of like the focus of everything we've been doing going forward. And our main mantra is just um, educating people. Um, we've got a new tagline, which is um, 
using financial literacy to bridge the gap between dreams and reality. And I guess that just embodies everything that Bricks for Tips is about. I like it. I like it. And I mean, obviously you've, you've kind of nicely segued into a, a, a really successful TV career, but was TV at any stage on your radar? <laughs> no chance. Not what, no chance. <laughs> yeah, not whatsoever. And fortunately I'm kind of, I'm kind of like a role with, go with the flow guy. A lot of people don't know that Bricks for Tips launched in 2019. Um, at the time I was working in banking. Part of it was in JP Morgan. Part of it was in Bank of America. Um, and I only actually quit full-time work maybe 2021, basically. So a huge part of Bricks with Tips and a huge part of television um, was while I was working full-time. So television came about because they saw our content online and they said, hey, we think you'd be good for um, television. Can you do a screen test, which is where they give you a little script and you um, film it and send it over to them. So this is why getting yourself in the, in the, getting yourself out of your comfort zone is good because... When I recorded my first YouTube video, I was incredibly uncomfortable, incredibly, way more than you can imagine. But it was for a greater good, basically. Not self-serving. Um, I'm a Christian by faith as well. So um, I'm a big believer in that. Like, I'm a big believer in, in serving others. Do you know what I'm trying to say? And that's how, that's how Antoinette and I both see Bricks with Tips, right? It was in, in made to serve others effectively. So that's kind of how we use that to get over things i'm going to segue into another story sorry and this kind of gives you an indication of how how we are with things as well so very early stages of bricks with tips i went over to darlington i was going to buy an investment property documented the whole thing right when i was up there um when i came back down and started editing the video editing used to take me ages in the early days um i realized that when i was filming in king's cross station i had a booger in my nose very embarrassing. <laughs> this is the early stages of Bricks with Tips, right? And okay. I made the decision to post it anyway because I, it's not a beauty channel. <laughs> I'm trying to say <laughs> it's not a beauty channel. And the content I was talking about at the time was very valuable and it benefited a lot of people. Um, I said that, that you know what, this decision is gonna is gonna help with how we think about our content going forward, basically. So, um, yeah, did I think that TV was going to come? No, not whatsoever. But because I spent all of those times uncomfortable in front of the camera, um, filming, getting ready, all of it was training for something that I didn't know was coming. So when they asked me to send a screen test, it's kind of like, mate, I record in front of a camera alone anyway. Do you get what I'm trying to say? So I can bang the screen test for you relatively easy. Send the screen test over to them. They were over the moon with it. And they said that, you know what, we'd love to bring you on board as a TV presenter. And this conversation we're having is a really, is a really, really fitting time because um, on the 2nd of October, the new series of the TV show is coming back on Channel 4. So definitely look out for that. The Great House Giveaway um, on Channel 4. But yeah, um, when I finally got into TV, I think that I did realise that a lot of the way I am is kind of suited to TV. So I did feel like it suited me once I got in there, but I did not ever think about it prior to getting into it. And I know there was a time in your career where, I'm not sure what year it was, but you were doing Bricks with Tips, you were also doing TV, and then you were also doing working full time. I mean, how how did you fit it all in at that, you know, at that period? There's, one, there's a one-word answer, right? Pandemic. <laughs> something like <laughs> something like that can only be achieved in a global pandemic. So really, really tough, right? Um, right? I would 
like typically this is what a day could look like so it's a wednesday everybody has to work from home anyway i was working at bank of america at the time what i've done is that i've taken a 7 a.m train to sunderland right i've arrived at sunderland i've put my laptop on i've logged in i'm on skype i've sent my emails in the morning i've told my team i'm here if they need any questions I've told the film crew that I've got a meeting that I need to take at 11 a.m., which is my team briefing, because at the time I was a team leader. Um, and then I've um, started shooting. So I'm filming, filming, filming. I take the 11 a.m. call. During those periods, people are messaging me on Skype. I have to pop back and use the Skype so on and so forth. Things that need to be done, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get to it by the end of the day. I might finish shooting at four. I'll go back to the hotel in Sunderland. I'll work from like five till nine doing all of the work that I should have done in the day, basically. And then at 9pm, I'll shoot a little social video, social media um, content. Um, and then I might edit that on a train back to London the next morning. So that's what it could look like. And that was an intense 12 months, but that's what kind of what I had to do to be able to get to this stage, basically. So there are um, times where you have to go through rough patches, times that are difficult, but you always got to see the light at the end of the tunnel. That's great hustling there. I mean, that's um, that's amazing. And that, that's probably before the times of flexible working, I guess. Like maybe you did it unofficially. Uh, I mean, I don't know. But yeah, that, that's, that's, that's amazing hustling skills there. So obviously t- TV career has kind of uh, blossomed for you. You mentioned that you're on The Great House Giveaway, which is on Channel 4. You're about to do another series, I think, called Key to a Fortune, which is also on Channel 4. And we mentioned before we recorded this podcast that we know somebody in common called Emmanuel. He's a, a financial advisor. And I believe you're, you're about to record a, uh, a TV show with him as well. So Iman and I have actually got a TV show out at the moment. So it's a digital TV show in association with Barclays and Channel 4. So it's called On The Money. Um, and what it does is it just helps. It was kind of like a podcast slash workshop. Um, you can see it right now on Channel 4 Digital, where we talk to people and give them advice on like running a business, buying their first home, savings, um, how to earn more money from a side hustle. So really, really interesting. Make sure you definitely look at checking that out. We will certainly do. And I mean, where, where would you like your TV career to go? You know, most of your uh, output at the moment is on daytime TV. So is that something you'd like to continue with? Or do you see yourself maybe branching out into evening TV? You know, I don't know, becoming the next Martin Lewis. Uh, <laughs> can, can we expect to see you on Strictly Come Dancing at some sometime soon? I mean, where, where, <laughs> uh, maybe. Wait, wait, maybe, okay. We'll, we'll, we'll see. I think that um, Key to Our Fortune is going to be a primetime TV show, which is nice. Um, okay. So that'll be my first venture into primetime. I'm definitely keen on doing some more TV. But where would I like to go to? Um, I would say um, from a property and finance perspective, wherever I can make the most impact. But from an entertainment perspective, anywhere where I can make impact as well, which is encouraging others, right? Sometimes people want to see um, a young uh, black guy from South London who is now on TV doing so on and so forth. I mean, uh, that's how I feel when I see um, Eddie Caddy, who's on Shitty Condancing at the moment. I'll see him and what he says to me is that, wow, maybe I could be on um, a celebrity TV show and actually come down to myself at some point. So, yeah, things like that are definitely encouraging. And when I see others do it, I just hope that I can do it for the next generation as well. Yeah, I mean, you, men- you mentioned about others. I mean, how does it feel to be part of this? It's almost like it's a new wave 
of Nigerian TV presenters, you know, who've broken through over the last two or three years. I mean, and, you know, we've always had black presenters over many years, but I think over recent years, you know, you've seen the likes of yourself, AJ Odudu, she's obviously doing Big Brother and stuff like that. The Big Breakfast, sorry, Big Breakfast. Ayo Akinlowet-Waleri, who's um, he's more of a sports broadcaster. But these are all people that have that are clearly Nigerian. They've got a Nigerian first name, a Nigerian surname. So how, how does it feel to be part of that uh, that new wave? I would say that some of them are the old wave and they've done really, really well, um, particularly AJ Dudu, Big Brother. That's absolutely insane, right? That's absolutely massive. Um, being part of the new wave, um, yeah, it's a privilege. Um, if we're talking about Nigerian presenters doing well, Tony, I'm not particularly surprised. Um, there's a saying that says that anywhere where there's money to be made, you'll find a Nigerian there. And you'll <laughs> yeah. find that through life, that rings true wherever you go. It doesn't matter what corner of the world there is. If there's some kind of opportunity, a Nigerian will be there. So, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's something that I learned early on. But it, it is a, a feel privileged to be part of that. And anywhere where there is visibility, you just got to be able to set an, a good example and hopefully encourage other people to do the same. And there's a lot of Nigerians doing um, massively well behind the camera as well. And good friends of mine, such as Nelson, who we've won awards at the same award shows and things like that. So, um, yeah, it definitely is a really, really good time. And, and I mean, on a practical level, uh, Tayo, I mean, how, how has life changed for you since you've become a TV personality? Um, it's, it's changed massively, you know. I think that it's, it's, been, it's been hard to identify because everything's happened simultaneously, right? Um, become a parent at the same time, parent of two. Um, over that same period, Bricks of Tips built up quite a lot. So it's quite funny because you don't know where people know you from. So I went to Edinburgh TV Fest because I was nominated for an award there. And um, I'm there in the capacity of Tyrell Gautonade, TV presenter of Great House Giveaway, which is what I was nominated for an award for. But you'll find that a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, Bricks of Tips. And they're known for the property stuff, effectively. So it's really, really interesting. But I think everything is a privilege anyway. And, um, and yeah, just happy once again to be able to make impact where possible. Right. I know you need to go in a, in a couple of minutes, so we're, we're very close to, to wrapping up. But one of the questions that we always ask all guests that come on the show is, you know, you've obviously been successful in your career to date. How much of your success do you think is down to one of, the, one of these three uh, factors, either luck, hard work or talent? Which do you think has contributed most towards your towards your success? I'm going to say a different one, right? And then I'll answer your question. God's grace is the first one, right? Okay. I genuinely believe that it's been God's grace that I've been able to be in this position in it, you know what I'm trying to say? And I feel like I'm here for a reason. Um, and that's why I always make sure that I try and give back, give other people opportunities and help others. But out of the three that you mentioned, um, I've always been a big um, believer in hard work. So I think hard work goes first. I think you just bang on the door, hard enough or kick it hard enough. Do you get what I'm trying to say? That's one thing that you can always do. Talent is difficult, right? Because you got it or you don't, right? And you can't impact it that much. You can work on stuff, but that also falls into hard work. But hard work, a lot of the time is that I just need to work harder than the guy next to me. I found that in my career. I found that in TV. I found that in Bricks with Tips. Like I'm out here going to events where I know no one, right? No one whatsoever, just networking. Very, very un- un- uncomfortable position to be in. But that's what you need to be doing. To, in my mind, that's what you need to be doing to be working harder than the next person, right? Because nothing comes for free in my mind. An element of it is talent. A huge part of it is 
just who I am. But I think that anybody can benefit from that talent because the talent is effectively just you being you. And once, you, once you're comfortable with you, with just being yourself, and once you're comfortable with the fact that you're the best person at being yourself, and once you're um, comfortable with the fact that you're a one of one, you can then use yourself or use yourself or that talent basically to go and um, create an impact wherever that is. And that is your talent, yeah. Your talent is being yourself. And then I, t- I put luck at the bottom just because those two things that I mentioned build up to opportunities, which I wouldn't necessarily call luck, right? They, they, they amount to opportunities effectively. So for example, some people might be saying, some people might say that it's luck that a Channel 4 company contacted me to do a screen test for a TV show. However, getting the position is what was important. And if I hadn't put in the hard work the year before, recording on a camera in a room by myself, getting better of the craft, getting better at my craft, I wouldn't have been able to pass the screen test and then become a TV presenter. And that's why I probably rank luck at the bottom because talent and hard work comes first. Yep. Excellent. Excellent. And we mentioned at the beginning that you're, you're going to be speaking at this uh, UK Black Business Show in a couple of weeks. You've got this new, another series of the Great House Giveaway starting again. Is that next week you said? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, starting in uh, October, beginning of October. Oh, October. So that's on Channel 4. So please watch out for that. And is it correct that you're also about to launch a, a business with uh, Emmanuel, the financial advisor? Yes, yes. So Emmanuel and I are launching a mortgage brokerage firm, which is aimed at educating people and kind of like bridging that wealth gap um, by educating people and helping them understand um, the world of finance, the world of leveraging, and also being able to provide them with mortgages effectively. I think one of the huge parts that's kind of kept black ownership quite low is that a lot of people don't trust the banks. Um, And why? Because the people that are in charge of lending um, be that a mortgage brokerage or a bank, um, people aren't familiar with them and they don't trust them with their money effectively. And sometimes that lack of trust goes both ways. Um, what Iman and I want to do as professionals is become that intermediary that can explain what these products actually are and how it can benefit people and hopefully lead a lot of people into home ownership. It sounds absolutely fantastic. So guys, watch out for that. I'm sure that's going to create a lot of value for a lot of people. Uh, Tayo, I know you need to go. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tony. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much to Tayo, charming man he is. Now, if any of you are budding property investors, do check out his YouTube channel, which is called Bricks with Tips. I'll uh, include a link in the show notes. There's a tons of value on there, so please do check that out. <laughs> it's so funny what he said about posting a video with uh, him with some bogeys on his on his nose I think he said and just not caring you know that that is bulletproof confidence isn't it just posting it and you're not really caring what anybody says so that was really funny and great also to hear about his wife Antoinette the fact that they are both heavily involved in their success story she will also be speaking at the Black Business Show which uh, starts next week so who knows perhaps we can get her on the show maybe next year to tell her own story I will link more information about their talks at the business show in the show notes. So uh, do check it out if you're going well worth getting uh, the chance to hear them speak. Let me know what you thought about the interview. Hit us up on the socials at How I Crushed It. 
or send us an email to howicrushedit at gmail.com and catch you on the next show.